Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. I've come to Calhoun County all the way from home to see if I can do something about getting people to help me correct a mistake which has been made here in Alabama over my book, The Teenagers, No Place to Run. I have a sense of you who have come through so much in the last 20 years, who have made changes that have required effort and soul searching. I have a sense of you, the kind of people you are, the sort of goodness you believe in, um, and I have a sense, too, of the burdens that your state is carrying at this very time, which on the face of it make my problems with the fact that people don't seem to like my book uh, seem perhaps insignificant or small, piddling in comparison to the economic suffering that is going on in Alabama and in many places in our country. Yet, I don't think this small detail of a book small book for young people is insignificant. I think it's extremely important. I do not come here in ignorance. I do not come here angry. But I do come here hurt. Because No Place to Run is a most moral book. A good story with truthful characters. It does not need to be locked up because someone has found curse words in it. Words that I don't particularly like so much either. It needs to be read by those readers who choose it for the insights it may have for them, for the liberation it may give them from present problems. I think banning of books is a very serious step to take and leads not to a more perfect society, but to the diminishment of human life. In 1957, I moved to New York City after graduating from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and um, studying at Wittenberg University in Ohio so that I could become a teacher. But I didn't move to New York City to become a teacher. I moved to New York City to study acting, like so many people with stars in their eyes. Uh, and I taught in a high school to finance me. Uh, I was too shy to make it in the theater, or, and probably not nearly good enough. But the shyness even prevented me from going to um, auditions. I think I went to one. Uh, <laughs> but I studied, I took drama lessons and, and met people who were interested in the same thing. Uh, I've had, I've had a few, I've had a little, I've had a years of experience of teaching, but not in high school. In the first week, uh, I had a job at George Washington High School. Some of you may remember Bill Haley and his comets. They made a movie called Rock Around the Clock, and it was photographed at George Washington High School, a place that looks like um, Mount Vernon and which has a very un-Mount Vernon atmosphere inside. Uh, it, is the it is a place, actually, that... Uh, is the school in my book, No Place to Run, but I don't call it George Washington High School. <clears throat> the first weeks for me at George Washington High School were tough. I'd been in New York two weeks. Uh, the kids were bigger and smarter in many ways than I was. 
And one of the things that happened to me the first week was that an established teacher in the school bawled me out for being in the halls one afternoon between classes. And I said, wait a minute, I'm not a student, I teach here. I looked young, I felt young. One morning I told a kid who was late to get up from his seat and go to the attendance office. You can't come into my classroom without a pass, I said. Taking his time about it, he finally left. I noticed on the dusty blackboard near where he'd been standing a word smudged in the thick chalk dust there. S-H-I-T, it said to my horror. Shit. I went home and cried. Uh, excuse me, I have to do something technical. This stopped. <laughs> wants me to record this, so I have to be. I messed up the first one, so I, I didn't put that. teacher if he would write such a filthy thing like that on the board and on and on finally one of my friends said look stop raving the boy lives in a cramped apartment with a lot of people he has no room for himself no privacy it's noisy no one listens to him in order to be noticed in lots of places in New York with its millions and millions of people you've got to make a lot of noise or say something shocking he wanted to let you know he was mad, that you were packing him out of your room, making him own up to his own lateness. It doesn't have anything to do with the kind of person you are. Remember where you are. I got right over it. Nothing I could do would change New York City overnight. And you, would you believe I haven't changed it yet? Uh, I'll never forget that first year teaching. My subject that year mainly was English to foreigners. I had kids from Spanish-speaking countries, Cubans and so forth, kids from Puerto Rico, and kids from Hungary whose families had sneaked out across dangerous Russian-controlled borders. I had kids who couldn't read, yet George Washington had 50% of their children going to college. There was a wide difference between the gifted and the fortunate and the illiterate foreign-speaking and the poor. One of my beautiful students from Cuba contracted the Asian flu and despondent because she had missed her mama and her family in the South, flung herself off a fire escape and killed herself. My lovely student. Another student got very angry with me because I had the gross ignorance to say that Puerto Rico was a foreign island. I'd forgotten for a minute that it belonged to the USA, that he was an American citizen as much as I. So you can imagine what kind of teacher I was this first week. 
When I asked one of my urban children what was the significance of the fog in a poem called The Wreck of the Hesperus, which everybody had to read in those days, she said, I don't know, but I think it's to scare away the fog. There is a big campaign in New York. There was a big campaign in New York to get people to stop throwing their trash everywhere on the streets. It was an anti-litter campaign. One spring afternoon, I took some of my 16-year-old girls 140 blocks downtown to Central Park, and we went for a walk. One girl said, I'm going to stay right here, Miss Beasley, and play with the grass. You come back for me, okay? When we returned, she complimented me in the most remarkable way. She looked at me with admiration and said, I bet you never litter, Miss Beasley. And I, she was right. I never did. There were crazies, as we called them, on the streets, in the subways by the dozens. At that time, the crazies were harmless. It wasn't dangerous in New York. You could get robbed. I never did until once I was mugged by some eight-year-old girl. But that was after I'd moved to New Rochelle and I was in my car on the way into New York City only a few years ago. <coughs> that was another story. But one Sunday, I rode the train up from Greenwich Village and on the train was this spiffy-looking oriental man in a handsome camel hair coat and a black derby hat. He looked prosperous and was reading one of the thousands of Chinese newspapers that are published in New York every day. Suddenly, he began reading it aloud in a silly voice and glancing from time to time at his defenseless audience as he read. At 42nd Street, I got up to get to kind of sneak out off the train and as I passed him going toward the door he leaned a little toward me and said hi up baby just like Humphrey Bogart <laughs> my mouth dropped open I went from that train to take the shuttle between Grand Central Station and Times Square does anybody know about the shuttle yeah you know that it just goes like this back and forth back and forth <laughs> And the thing about the shuttle is that um, it, doesn't, it doesn't need any supervising personnel, but for some reason there is a conductor that rides on this train. And that, at that day it was running about every five minutes or so, and um, the conductor was on there, and I noticed him right away. I think his job was utterly meaningless, and it was driving him mad. He wasn't needed at all. He coped with it by doing nutty things like lifting up his shoe and scratching his sole. I want you to see how funny this looks. <laughs> and uh, uh, then no, nobody looked at him. He took out a big watch. It was a toy and announced the time and how soon the train would be in the station. When it arrived, as it always did, in three or four minutes, the doors automatically opened. The conductor shouted at everybody there, Times Square, everybody out, please use the doors that don't open. Everybody use the doors that do not open. And the people went right on out, nobody paying any attention to him at all. That was New York. I started to write after I had children. Uh, my first book was Home Free, and it was a book about a racial incident that 
that I imagine took place in South Carolina. I had this, I'll tell this for the writers, I had one of these dream kind of cosmopolitan lady experiences as a starting writer. I ne it never occurred to me to write until um, shortly before I got married, I suddenly wanted to do a, a picture book. And I tried doing one about um, Noah's Ark and the Ark was on wheels. You can imagine how good it was. <laughs> anyway, uh, after I was married, they were giving a class at the New School in Social Research, which is a wonderful place in New York and one of the few things that doesn't change in New York. The people there all look the same. They're all adults mainly, and they go for classes from everything in the world. It's very, very wonderful. Uh, so they had a class in writing for children. And I went to, um, I went to this class, and right away, something very New York-y happened. The teacher who was teaching it, this famous author, quickly said, well, I have brought in this young George Nicholson, and uh, I'm not going to be able to teach the class this, this semester, but he will. And I thought, oh, well, you know, it's probably some kid from down the block. But he did turn out to be an editor at Delacorte Press. And everybody who in the class read their stuff out loud every day, every week. And it was my luck that he liked what I read very, very much. And I found that not, I wasn't writing picture books, that I suddenly started to write a, a novel. And something I had never thought I could do. And I wrote and wrote and wrote, and I got maybe three quarters of the way through. And he seemed to like it very much, and he said, um, the class came to the end, and I said, somebody said that if I uh, finished this, I probably could take it to Lion Books and submit it to them. It Maybe it's good enough for that. And he said, no, no, no. He said, when you finish the book, submit it to me at Delacorte Press, which is, you know, part of, it is a tradeback publishing house that's part of Dell. So uh, I said, well, all right. And he bought the very first book that I wrote, uh, which is a very unusual writing story, I think, because most people talk about the millions of rejection letters that you get. I would like to say that I went on to become rich and famous, but I went on to get rejection letters. And, uh, you know, some good things and some bad things, but I, writing is a profession that brings a lot of suffering and something about in the nature of it, I think, and a lot of frustration and disappointment and also a lot of happiness. But uh, I had all, I have had the whole mixed bag, I think, since then. So Home Free was published in 1970. Um, I was writing at the time that Martin Luther King was killed and um, it all sort of seemed to be part of that era. Then it was about four years before I published my next book, which was Tor Heyerdahl and the Reed Boat Ra, and it was about his trip on the papyrus boat. And the navigator happens to be a, the husband of a friend of mine in New Rochelle. And when he was telling children about the story, um, I had the idea that it would be nice to, to write it for children, so I did that. Then I wrote Travels with Uncle Jack for Scholastic Press, and... Um, Finally, I then went back to the new school and started taking classes again. I felt, I got to the point where I thought I needed feedback on my writing, and then I needed advice. And so, um, as, when I was in this class again, what, George Nicholson was no longer teaching it. He had become the editor-in-chief of Viking Press, 
uh, children's book at Vikings Press, uh, although now he's back at Dell, Delacorte. Anyway, I started to write. Um, that was my writing thing, and I had my children were getting a little bit older, maybe like 12 years old and 14 years old. And things in New York were getting tougher, as you know, around 1975. Old people were not safe anymore. They were not only robbed, but they were beaten and hurt and sometimes killed. A first grade teacher was robbed in her classroom in front of all the terrified little kids. A group of teenagers set a sleeping tramp on fire and killed him. The New York Times came out with a cover showing a 14-year-old boy with a gun in his hand and they think that they can kill. And the laws were very easy at that time and uh, many of them were killing and doing terrible things and they were back on the streets immediately. Um, the uh, Time magazine came out with a thing on teenage violence. So it was in this sort of climate that I had the idea once as I was driving to church in New York City. I belonged to a church called St. Peter's Church at 54th and Lexington. And I belonged to it before we moved out to the suburbs um, in 1964. And I somehow couldn't get connected to a <coughs> suburban church. So I decided to go back into New York City. And 54th and Lex is where that Citicorp building is, the one that's very, it's like the sixth tallest building in New York City. And it has a slanted top like that and the bands of aluminum that go around. Well, this church is this little church, uh, granite, modern granite church. It has a Louise Nevelson chapel in it. Now, you may have some of you, have any of you seen it? Very, yeah, very striking building. Anyway, um, I was going to, to the, I was very active in that church, and I was going to a church council meeting um, and driving along the East River Drive, I could see the lights of the city, and I could also see the graffiti that was painted on the buildings and on the overpasses and so forth. And suddenly I had this idea for a novel about, and I saw the whole first chapter in my mind. A lot of writers, I think, write from words. I seem to write from pictures in my head. And um, I, it was a, I saw this picture of this tramp being spray painted by two boys and uh, sort of identified the boy. The first boy, Billy, as a newcomer to New York, and the second boy as a street, you know, a tough street kid who had kind of led him into this unfortunate thing. And what I think I wanted to deal with was guilt and how kids come to live with it. Real guilt, not, you know, not the kind of guilt we carry around that we shouldn't, that we should get rid of, but what, how do you live with guilt when you really are guilty? Um, so when I came to the church council meeting, I sat down and made my notes on the first chapter so that I wouldn't forget anything. And then I began the long process of writing the book. It took about a year and a half. I wrote it during the time I was in this class. And then after I sold it, I spent six months revising it with Dick Jackson, the editor at Bradbury Press, who bought it. Uh, during this period, I met a boy who'd run with a gang. And he told me this story that he was living in the Bronx. And one day, uh, a lot of the boys two gangs had gone into a schoolyard. 
He had a gun in his pocket, as he always did. He was always armed. But one of the boys had wrestled the gun out of his hand and had, and had taken his gun away. And just then, the policeman came into the schoolyard, and and they and they said, "Drop your weapons!" And this kid, who had just wrestled his gun away from him, didn't drop it, and he shot him dead. So this boy um, was saved, in a sense, by having this gun wrestled out of his hand. But these things were going on as they as they do go on in New York and other cities worse. New York City is not the most violent city in the nation, as you probably know. Um, so then he parents sent him to school in Staten Island, and he no longer has to go to class armed. No Place to Run is a book about kids in New York and other people there. If you read it, you'll recognize the frustrated conductor. Uh, he was real. The woman, uh, the, the Pastor Aethelius is, uh, was based on my pastor at St. Peter's Church, a real character. The woman who called the pastor, Pastor Baby, in a motherly way, not a flirty way, really did leap out of a window or was pushed. She was a bag lady who used to come to church. Uh, just as when I was young in Ohio, I liked to play cops and robbers with my brother, a city game. So my husband in... Uh, Big childhood Philadelphia like to play a country game, cowboys and Indians. So I think kids in Alabama probably like to read about kids in New York, and just as New York kids probably like to read about kids in Alabama. It's interesting. I've written a book about how it really is there. Maybe New York kids don't want to read about it. They know what it's like. They'd like to read about you know, other places. And I think that's one of the things that books do. They bring you into contact with places and people who are not your own and who are not familiar. And it's one of the ways that we, as a very diverse nation, you know, grow in understanding with each other by reading books that come out of other places. Uh, you know what the favorite, most popular book is in the poorest library in the poverty-stricken bashed up Bronx. It is not Judy Bloom or any of my stuff. It is not um, adventure stories. I was told by the, by the librarian there, it is Cinderella. They can't keep that book on the shelf. I think it has to do with the fairy godmother and dreams coming true for somebody who is poor and needs happiness and dreams to come true in their lives. I think kids will choose the books that they want to read. No matter how good mothers and dads and teachers and librarians are, kids have their secrets. Kids have their reasons that they're not going to tell. Baptist kids and Methodist kids and Jewish kids and Episcopal kids and kids who don't sign up with churches and synagogues, they will read what they care about. Maybe you don't like what they're reading, you should tell them. I believe you should always tell them that there are rotten, cheap, stupid, boring, vulgar, embarrassing, tiresome books, just like there are that kind of people and those kind of experiences in life. Um, I think very often you'll be surprised kids will, will listen to it. Sometimes you can <coughs> say to a kid, I think this book is all right for you to read, 
but uh, you're not ready for it yet. And in a sense, the kid will respect your protective look, for, your protective lookout for him. Now maybe he won't. Maybe he says, I'm going to read it anyway. And that's when I think a good parent or a good teacher says, all right, you have to read it, you want to read it, I'm going to read it too, and we'll talk about it. Sorry with me if you read it, if you'll talk about it with me. And the point is, is not to have anything in the world that you won't talk about with your kid, whether you're a teacher or a parent, that you can say, it makes me uncomfortable, it embarrasses me, and, and I feel creepy and I think it's stupid, but that you'll still talk about it. Um, I think in Alabama, here in Calhoun County, people may have a, an idea that about, you know, directing kids in a certain way. Some people. I know that, I, that when we talk about people who are choosing books out of the library as being really hurtful for kids, so bad that they cannot be on the open shelves available for them. But in some ways, the child has to be protected against these books. Um, I think those people probably have the idea that you really have to train children very hard to put them on a track, and you have to see that they stay on that track for their whole life so that you know at all times where they are and where they're going to end up. Others of us, I think, think about children that the best we can do for them is to try to help them to get on their own two feet. And so um, we maybe work in, we, we risk their making their own decisions. We risk their making mistakes in our, you know, in our protective company so that we can help them over these mistakes, but then so that they know something. Um, when the time comes for them to be adults and you're not there to see that they're on the track or not. Um, in Alabama, I know that children are given a lot of background about who they are and what their traditions are. And I think that's wonderful. People give their children roots. In many parts of the United States, children are very rootless. They don't belong to the community. They don't belong to a family that, you know, says that here we are with this kind of people. Uh, and because they're, the parents are confused. And I think here in Alabama you do a great job for making kids belong to a time, belong to a culture. But you also have to give children wings. And maybe this kind of book banning is trying to control their minds a little bit that these people want to do who are trying to censor the books uh, is not giving those children wings, not letting them um, try things out for themselves. Kids who are given wings are not going to necessarily fly away and leave you. They're not going to become dope addicts and idiots. They're going to unfold like great trees with wind and sunshine in their branches. They'll grow bright and tall and healthy. God willing, and make a better world than this, perhaps. They're lucky, or at least a little bit different, their world anyway. Um, I think that, that Alabama, at least to the things I read about Alabama where I live, give me often this feeling that, it's, that there's a kind of tightness and a kind of closed-in thing. It's as if 
a lot of the people are inside a building and they're looking out windows, but the windows are closed and they whisper inside the little rooms, we're doing fine, we don't need anybody out there, we don't need to know anything out there, it's dangerous, it may even be of the devil. And I think that's really kind of sad. It's, um, and when those people like that become a very, those people who really feel like that, and I know that many people do not hear, uh, it gets, life gets very closed up and they affect other people. I think you've got to open windows and lean far out, breathe in the liberating air with all its pollution perhaps, suck it into your lungs, but you have to hold on to your position, don't fall out the window, but at the same time don't suffocate yourself either. Take these ideas that people are writing down in their books and look at them. Read the same book with kids. See if you can't get a good talk going about them between you. Listen to their thoughts. And the big thing is, and it's very hard for a parent. I know I'm, I've got two, that one 18 and one 19. And it's very hard if you don't think they have quite the right idea. But bite your tongue. Don't tell. Don't try to change their opinion. But say yours. That's the important thing. Listen to their thoughts. Don't try to change them. Respect them and let them share their feelings with yours. You'll be surprised how wise they are, I think. Every book, even a crummy book, is a chance for people to clarify issues on sex or drugs or race or honesty or religion or honor. People sit and watch gobs of surfacey TV shows, uh, and they never kind of get to the issues underneath them. I mean, you know, soap operas always dance around dramatic events, but they don't get to the truth. And children's books, I think, try to get to the truth in the most remarkable way and with the most remarkable freedom in the 70s. That we There never have been books for teenagers like there are today. And uh, what's happening with the thing where we have these kind of book, book censorship things, and having a book put on a shelf, closed shelf, is definitely censorship. Um, means that it's going to have a chilling effect on the whole uh, educational system, on parents, on teachers, they'll get scared, on librarians, and certainly on writers. A group of concerned parents who have met at every possible moment outside of their busy lives to try to fight the suppression of books. And I'm very grateful to her. This is the book, No Place to Run. Do any of you have any questions? And, they, and really comments, I think maybe you don't have to ask the question. Yes. Is Elvin the only state that's banned in your book? Yes, it is the only. <laughs> <laughs> but it is certainly not the only state that is banning books. I think extremely important to know that every state in the union <coughs> is banning books, particularly in children's in school libraries. It's, um, I understand that the incident of it has increased 400% in the last four years. It's very rare before. It probably is because the books are dealing with more, uh, you know, difficult subjects, maybe. But I think it's it has it says some it probably says more about the censors than the censored 
Yes. What are the criteria for determining that bad books? How, how do they know that it's a bad book and it's not yours? Uh, um, does anyone want to answer that? I bet a lot of you know. <laughs> uh, I think that for my book, they said it was the language. It has curse words in it. And, uh, there, it is interesting to note, I think, that uh, there have been laws on the books of southern states against um, vulgarity and pornographic language in literature. So that in a sense, I as a writer need to know that and respect that, that that is part of the, that the words have an extremely powerful meaning here. And you know that in other parts of the country, they probably don't have quite the same effect. Words do. The power of words is different in different places. So that, um, you know, I can appreciate the, that they have, they look, they, perhaps they look worse here than they do there. Other things. Well, yes. The thing to me is it's happening in New England, it's happening in the Midwest, it's happening almost everywhere. What is Penn uh, organizing to fight that? Definitely. They have this thing called um, the American Right to Read. And it's just been founded, um, or just been started, I think, uh, in, in April of 1982. And I have a few. I don't have endless numbers of these, but I have a few I'd be glad to give them to you. Maybe I'll just read this to you. Since November 1980, the incident of book banning and attempted book banning in this country has increased fold. It has affected nearly one quarter of all U.S. school districts. Uh, on September 82, Pan American Center, an organization of 1,800 professional literary writers dedicated to the right of free expression and to the preservation of world literature, will begin sending writers to communities around the country to address the threat to the First Amendment right to read. It was developed by writers of Penn in order to encourage public discussion of problems encountered by communities in which the reading of certain books is being challenged. Through the project, writers will speak with students, parents, teachers, and so forth uh, on the, on the, about the experience of writing, the importance of reading, the value of access to a variety of literature and ideas. The American Right to Read project is designed to bring the reader and the writer closer to one another in their common efforts to understand the world. So there's a Writers Speaking Bureau, an Information Clearinghouse, and Assistance in Litigation, and they have a thing that you might like to see sometime down here, an evening of forbidden books. <laughs> and you know what's on it, of course. Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> it's, uh, let's see what else. Well, there's a huge list of books that are um, Slaughterhouse Five, Catcher in the Rye, books that you probably also read. An Evening of Forbidden Books is a videotaped documentary on book censorship, and I think it's for rent probably fairly reasonable. So if you'd like to pursue this, um, you can certainly have it to read. Maybe your writer's group would enjoy that. Yes? Without naming them, what you that you get a book? Yes. Uh, 
Well, I know that I hate pornography. <laughs> so maybe it would be uh, books with um, about sexual experiences that are hateful, cruel, painful. Um, and told in a way that demeans something that demeans the people who are involved and that where the sex is written for the point of the sex and not to not to express character or an idea or um, setting or something like that. I think really I would be willing to read anything that is that is good literature. But um, I hate pornography because I think it hurts people. On the other hand, I also know that it has, for some people, um, it probably serves a function. Um, well, <laughs> Steve, uh, when I wrote No Place to Run, Steve was about 12 years old and he was very interested and he corrected all my words and told me that this wasn't strong enough or that wasn't right or I didn't sound it old fashioned. Um, and so he likes that book very much, I think. My daughter, uh, I think she thinks it's okay. Um, it's a very tricky thing. It's a heavy thing to lay on your family. What do you think of my book? <laughs> they can't say the right thing. If they say, oh, it's great, you think, oh, it's stupid, they just you know, prejudice, and if they say it's terrible, you think they're mean. <laughs> and it's a terrible position to have to be related to a writer. <laughs> yes? It's like uh, sort of a compromise that came out of all this business was creating a special ship that children would have to uh, check the books from and would have to carry them some uh, sort of a uh, limited amount of censorship, I guess, or whatever. Do you, would you have to take that? I have a very strong opinion about it. I think it's out-and-out out censorship. Um, and for, for I think the thing about it is, I understand in these schools that they are not allowed to do book reports on these books, even if their parents have given them the right to take the books out. They are not allowed to be discussed in the classroom so that if you would say there's something wrong with the book, and maybe there is something wrong with the book in a lot of people's eyes, that's fine. But if you can't talk about it, and for a writer like me who is not a famous writer, um, all right, there's a little interest this month in No Place to Run, but if you put it on a shelf by this time next year, it will have dust over it, thick dust, and it will never be rescued. It, 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 it kills it. Steinbeck, he'll get out of this shelf. But I won't. <laughs> I mean, you know, children's books are, some of them are very great literature. I don't think this is great literature. I do think it's, it, it, it's well written. But um, it might be, it might come someday to be great literature in that it has something to do with this movement of people recognizing the dangers of censorship and the problems. Uh, one of the, I spoke to another a class at Jacksonville uh, State University today, and one of the students said to me, uh, well, hearing about this book, I worry uh, that kids who read it, you know, immature boys and 
might think, oh, they're very smart and smart enough and they get ideas from it and they do things, um, you know, based on the, the cool guys in your book. And she said, so I think it should only be read uh, under the guidance of a teacher. And I said, well, for how long, how old does the person have to be when he is not, you know, when he's ready to read it on his own? And senior in high school, 18, able to go to war. And she said, um, yeah, I guess so. And I said, and then suppose that the person takes it and only reads the dirty words in it. Um, I said, or just takes it and, and just reads a bit of it or maybe only read chapter 9 because maybe that's the interesting part of him. And she said, well, yeah, I know. I said, I said, you know, you really cannot control how somebody uses this book. Even a younger person, you can't control how they use it. And what a terrible job to take on yourself controlling how somebody uses books. So at the end, after the discussion, she really had thought about it, and she said, I think, she said, I, you know, she said, I think maybe, you know, that's not such a good idea. I mean, there certainly are books that we need to discuss together, Shakespeare and all of that. I think this book is interesting to discuss because it has a certain kind of point of view for kids. Um, but it doesn't have to be read as discussed. It can be read just just like you watch a TV show or just like you watch a football game. And then somebody said, well, uh, well, what's the wrong with having dirty words in the book? And, um, and the thing is, that it's, it's, some people think it's permission to use those words. But you read about murder in the book. Is that permission? As far as you can tell, that's all it's well, everybody, you know, all the writers say, wow, lucky you. <laughs> and I think that works in adult books. I really think that works. The minute, you know, an adult, you hear that something is wild and, 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 people, and controversial, it makes adults want to read it. But, the, but children's books are controlled by adults. And um, they are distributed by adults, and they are bought by adults in libraries. And libraries of all kinds are the biggest buyers of children's books, not bookstores. So you can go out today and look for no place to run in all your bookstores, and you will not find it. If you want to read it, you have to make it. It is available. You have to order it. And you have to have your bookstore order it, or you have to go to your library, which has it either on closed shelves or open shelves. And um, I think what happens with other people hear about this no place to run thing. Teachers have a lot on their minds in schools, a lot of things to fight always, complications. They'll say, oh, let's not bother with it. There are other books. You know, we don't have to worry about this. I feel that my sales will drop because of this. And I think I'm possibly right about it. My publisher told me, they haven't got any intention of reprinting it again. You know, I mean, now, if there were really a demand, they certainly would love to reprint it. But I said, well, how about telling your book uh, salesman about it? And she said, well, it's not very new. You know, so. Yeah, 
I think that that is the main, the biggest effect, is that it does inhibit the writer, definitely, because you, you know, the best books, I think, are written for yourself, that you come in touch with the deepest things in yourself, stretch them out, and try to get them on the page so that they are interesting in some way to somebody else. And uh, the minute you, you begin self-centering, you know, and begin trying to write for your audience, you're going to do a lesser book. It's not going to be as great a book. I mean, it's very easy right now to, to do books for the audience. They want romances, they pay well, they sell a lot. They want um, all kinds of things. They, they keep all publishers are now saying, merchandisable books, gimmicky books, choose your own adventure. I don't know if you know that. Uh, but they're not, they're not literature. Literature, literature deals with issues and, uh, and reveals the uh, ironies and the depths of things. And that's why literature is so valuable. We need it for our time. Yeah. Are you going to change yourself by having the other picture? It's just one state. I would say it's not just one county for, it's the fact that this is happening not just for my book, but all across the nation is affecting all writers. Uh, because you hear from your editor, you hear from your publisher, and they're afraid. They have to, they have to sell a certain number of books to keep their jobs. And, uh, and I think that every time somebody stands up and says, wait, we don't want our book, we don't want this to happen, that, that pushes back this uh, movement a little bit. But I think it really is a movement. I think it's kind of war that's going on in a way over ideas and the, and the schools are such a powerful battleground for these ideas because they affect people so that, you know, we're all products of our schools wherever we went. And, yeah. How successful are those writers who have fought back the past? Uh, <laughs> how do you mean successful, I should say? Well, uh, like, you know, you're trying to fight it, uh, you want your book to go back to the or something. Yeah. Well, it's, um, well, I'll tell you, in Island Trees, uh, which is a school um, in, in Long Island where the school board took, took books out of a school library, a group of students uh, initiated a legal action against them. And uh, first the students, the school board won and said, yes, you can keep the books off the shelves, but then it was appealed and the, and the Supreme Court said they had to be put on a closed shelf. And I understand that even though the, the students didn't win 100%, that right now all those books are back on the open shelf. They are no longer on the closed shelf. So in a sense, just there, making the effort, succeeded. I want to tell you about, you know, kind of up things to end on. Um, there, there's another, you know, Island Trees is famous in, in the censorship battle. 
but there is another school in Long Island called Wading River, Shore of Wading River. And this school, I think, is the most wonderful school I've ever visited. Children's book writers go to lots of schools to visit. And this one has is designed for this. The library is in the very center of the school. And uh, everybody, in order to get somewhere else, has to walk through the library. It's not a room. It's like a big, round hall. And so they constantly go back and forth and see the books. And at 11 o'clock, everything stops in this school. And all the children take out the pop. They have to carry pocketbooks with them, you know, paperback books. All the children read, all the school teachers read, all the custodians read, everybody in that little community reads books. And, it's, you know, they don't have to discuss them, you don't have to, you can if you want, but, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, they get to read their book, and then they go back to the other things in their school. And I think this would be a great thing for Alabama to do. <laughs> I would recommend this book break. <laughs> yes. Uh, my mother read your book, No Place to Run, and uh, believe it or not, it was the first book she ever insisted that I read, and I read it, okay. and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so do your mother. <laughs> Some people have very good mothers. <laughs> Thank you. I enjoyed being here.